time 840 here i just have a feeling that the things that we say this evening they will echo in eternity but let's not get crazy right let's not get out of alignment with reality i mean let's grieve right i'm all for grieving so let's grieve and whatever now let's grieve for the loss of the united states of america as we know it uh, let's grieve and, and whatever for the loss of our freedoms now let's grieve and whatever for the prospects of our children uh, let's grieve and whatever for life and love as, as we know it but let's not do anything crazy all right let's not do anything that restricts our our future 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 freedom of movement right if if you get into conflict with reality reality is always going to win so let, let's grieve, yeah, for what we've lost. And let's grieve that the left controls all our major institutions. All right. But uh, let's not do anything crazy here. All right. Let, let's not say anything that negatively impacts our life. Right? Let's not get into any trouble here. Let's just come from a cool, calm, quiet place. And part of coming from a cool, calm, quiet place comes from reading the opposition. And there was an interesting op-ed in the New York Times today. The one thing Donald Trump has that Ron DeSantis never will. And it's by Sam Adler hyphen Bell. All right. Hyphenated Sam Adler Bell. Right. And Mr. Adler Bell is a writer and a co-host of Know Your Enemy. So it's a left-wing podcast about the conservative movement. So let's know our enemy together. And... Let's grieve for what we've lost, but let's not do anything that restricts our future freedom of movement. So, Governor Ron DeSantis of Florida is in a trap of his own devising. His path to the Republican presidential nomination depends on convincing Donald Trump's base that he represents a more committed and a more disciplined version of the former president, that he shares their popular grievances and aims only to execute the Trump agenda with, with greater force and skill. So, populism is a spasm, right? You can't, it's really, really hard to have an ongoing. Uh, populist movement. In fact, it's virtually impossible. You're not going to develop populist institutions, generally speaking. Populism is a reaction when the people react against a, a governing elite. And so it's hard to build any institutions. It's hard to build any institutional movement around populism. It's a spasm. It's a temporary phenomenon. It's a rejection of the way the life is being conducted right now and donald trump kind of embodies populism and he embodies that uh, lol nothing matters attitude but uh, ron DeSantis path the republican nomination depends upon convincing a gop elite grown wearying of donald trump's erratic bombast not to mention electoral losses and legal jeopardy so donald trump has convincingly lost the 2018 election midterms, the 2020 presidential election, and the 2022 midterm elections where Republicans were expected to do much, much better than they really did. So he is on a long losing streak. So GOP elites never liked Donald Trump, really, really don't like him now. And Ron DeSantis has largely you know, convinced the GOP elite that he is the the one to back. Ron DeSantis represents himself as a much more responsible alternative, that he is shrewd where Donald Trump is reckless, that he is bookish where Donald Trump is Philistine, 
that uh, Ron is scrupulous, cunning, and detail-oriented, where Trump is impetuous and easily bored. And I think this is true. So, in short, to the base of the Republican Party, Ron DeSantis must be more Trump than Trump. But to the donors and to the Republican elite, he much must be much less than Trump. So that's a great way of summarizing it. This comes from a leftist. And I think he's absolutely right. To the Republican base, Ron DeSantis needs to be more Trump than Trump. But to the Republican donor class and to the Republican elites and to the undecided voters, right, he needs to be much less than Trump. So, so far, Ron DeSantis has had far greater success with the Republican elites. He's paired an aggressive stance on culture wars with free market economics and an appeal to his own competence and expertise. So he has corralled key Republican donors. He has corralled Fox News, the Rupert Murdoch media empire executives, conservative thought leaders from National Review to the Claremont Institute. He polls consistently and considerably higher than Donald Trump with wealthy, college-educated, city- and suburb-dwelling Republicans. So Donald Trump has lost the last three elections in the suburbs. There has been a 2% swing against Donald Trump and what he represents in the suburbs from 2018, 2020, 2022, compared to what Donald Trump was doing in 2016. So it's in the suburbs where Donald Trump is losing and he's losing consistently three times in a row. So for the GOP, the primary fight has begun to tell an all-too-familiar story. It is the elites versus the rabble. And speaking of rabble, here's Tucker Carlson. Good evening and welcome to Tucker Carlson tonight. Imagine being a historian a hundred years now trying to figure out what happened here. There are a lot of questions that are going to puzzle you, but one of the most baffling will be, how did Joe Biden get the Democratic nomination in 2020? 2020 was the year you will remember when we learned that white people are bad and systemic racism is responsible for everything that has gone wrong in the world. And yet 2020 was also the year the Democrats nominated, by their free choice, an elderly white man from a slave state who'd once eulogized a Klan recruiter. So the anti-white party picked the white guy. How did that happen? Well, it's pretty simple. Democrats care about power, and power derives from winning. When you lose, you don't have power. And Bernie Sanders couldn't win. Sanders terrified the donor class. So Democrats went with Joe Biden, who loves the donor class and is loved by them. And from a fundraising perspective, that turned out to be a wise choice. By the end of that cycle, Democrats had spent a total of $8.4 billion. That includes $400 million just from Mark Zuckerberg. And that total does not even include the tens of billions in free media coverage as slick and dishonest as any paid ad, but that, unlike paid ads, is not regulated by campaign finance law. So if you add all of that up, the Democratic Party dropped more in that presidential year than the entire annual GDP of most African countries, all to dislodge Donald Trump from the White House. Nothing like that has ever happened. Can they do it again? That's the question before us, and it's a tougher question this round. Two and a half years ago, many voters could tell themselves that Joe Biden might unite the country. Some mistook his dementia for moderation, but no one can make that mistake now. 
With the American economy in decline and the rest of the world in obvious chaos, Biden's going to have to come up with a whole new set of lies in order to keep his job. And that's not an easy thing. And that may explain why, as of mid-April 2023, where we are now, Joe Biden still has not formally announced his re-election campaign. He was asked about it this morning on NBC. Here he is sounding less than all in. Are you? Okay, that's a pretty moronic analysis. Uh, okay, we gave the rebel a, a, a choice there. I, I've even got Republican friends who say that uh, if, if Biden runs against Trump again, they're going to vote for, for Biden. Uh, Luke Croft says, 40, we need another four years, Joe Biden. We need competent, technocratic governance that can save us from the Coomers and the theocrats. The donor class knows what they're doing. Tucker is delusional, says the chat. Okay, let's get back to this hierarchy essay in the New York Times, which I really think nails it. All right, it's an essay by a lefty, but it nails it. So Trump appears to have taken notice of this incipient class divide, and he keeps skewering Ron DeSantis as a tool for globalist plutocrats and the Republican old guard. So Trump is very much noticing what is happening, and he is very effectively counterpunching. So Donald Trump has been surging in the polls even before his indictment. In the past few weeks, he has skewered Ron DeSantis as a tool for globalist plutocrats and Republican old guard. Since his indictment by a Manhattan grand jury, Trump has sought to further solidify his status as the indispensable people's champion, attacked on all sides by a conspiracy of liberal elites. So while Republican donors and Republican operatives may prefer a more housebroken populism, it is Donald Trump's surmise that large parts of the base still want the real thing, what's and all. And if his wager pays off, it will be signed not just of his continued dominance over the Republican Party, but also of something deeper, an ongoing revolt against the best and the brightest, the notion that only certain people with certain talents, credentials, and subject matter expertise are capable of governing. So as each month goes by, more and more of our most important decisions are being taken by elites. And I'm not inherently opposed to that. I am equidistant between technocratic rule, elite rule, and populist rule. So there are plenty of issues where I side with populists, plenty of issues where I side with a technocratic elite. So by and large, with regard to COVID, I side more with the elite and the technocrats than with the populists when it comes to immigration and the basic recognition that different people have different gifts. I side with the populists over the technocratic elites. So during his second inaugural address in Tallahassee in January. Ron DeSantis embraced the culture war pugilism that has made him a Fox News favorite. He railed against open borders, identity essentialism, the coddling of criminals, and attacking of law enforcement. Florida, he reminded his audience, is where woke goes to die. But the real focus was on results, a word that he keeps repeating. Ron DeSantis promises competent leadership, sanity, and liberty. So I have no doubt that Ron DeSantis would be much more effective at running things. I have no doubt that Ron DeSantis would be much more competent in governing compared to Donald Trump. For most of the speech, Ron DeSantis sounded very much the Reaganite conservative from central casting, talking about you know, low taxes, you know, deregulation. So Ron DeSantis's populism is heavy on cultural grievances, light on economic ones. So these maneuvers tend to endear him to the nationalist crowd. He 
flew a few dozen Venezuelan migrants from Texas to Martha's Vineyard. He attempted to ban critical race theory at public colleges. He retaliated against Disney, criticizing his don't say gay bill. So he did all these things to calibrate and burnish his populist bona fides without unduly provoking GOP elites who long for return to relative conservative normalcy. But is there enough of a constituency in America for conservative normalcy? So Republican mega donors like the Koch family, the hedge fund billionaire Ken Griffin, admire Ron DeSantis in spite of his populist firebrand image that he periodically plays on TV. So Ken Griffin told Politico that he hopes that Ron DeSantis will blunt the populism that has turned Republican politicians against the corporate world. And he gave $5 million to Ron DeSantis' re-election campaign. So Ron DeSantis' principal claim to being Donald Trump's legitimate heir is his handling of the COVID pandemic in Florida. And he depicts his decision to reopen the state and to ban mask mandates as a bold move against technocrats and scientists. All right. But his disdain for experts is selective. So while Donald Trump has kind of this knee-jerk reaction against experts, Ron DeSantis simply prefers some experts and elites to others. So when he was deciding how to address the pandemic, Ron DeSantis collaborated with Stanford epidemiologist Jake Bhattacharya, and he followed the recommendations of a group of epidemiologists from Stanford, Harvard, and Oxford push for a swifter reopening. So Ron DeSantis had a preference for their recommendations over those of Anthony Fauci and the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. So Ron DeSantis does not signify a rejection of expertise as such, only an embrace of alternative expertise. Right? Ron DeSantis wanted to save Florida's tourism economy. He found experts who would tell him how to do that. So Donald Trump is much more populist and much more rejecting of expertise in general. So Ron DeSantis is not really against elites. He just wants to replace the current elites in academia, corporations, and governments with more effective, more conservative elites, elites who have not been infected by the woke virus. So Ron DeSantis doesn't want to do away with the technocratic oligarchy. He wants to repopulate it with people like him. So populists, they have different aspirations from Ron DeSantis. And uh, there's a left-wing historian, Christopher Lash, who's been quoted a great deal by conservatives in the last 10 years. He wrote back in 1994, the reign of specialized expertise is the antithesis of democracy. And that's absolutely right. The more you turn government over to the experts, right, the less the people get to rule themselves. So in the 19th century, European visitors to America were impressed and unnerved by finding even farmers and laborers devouring periodicals and participating in the debating societies of early America. So the defining feature of America's democratic experiment was not just the chance to rise in the social scale, but the absence of such a scale that clearly distinguishes commoners from gentlemen. So 20th century capitalism resulted in a maldistribution of intelligence and competence. You had experts usurping governance and the value of practical experience has plummeted. So Christopher Lash briefly came into vogue among conservatives during the early years of Trump as president, but they never grasped the central claim that generating equality of competence would require economic redistribution. Well, you are never, ever, 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 ever going to have equality of competence, right? Because different groups have different gifts. Some groups are more competent than others, right? Some people are more 
you know, efficient and effective and intelligent and capable than other people. So in 20, his 2011 book, Ron DeSantis railed against this leveling spirit that threatens to take hold in the republic. And his principal target in this book is redistributive justice, like any effort at all to share the benefits of economic growth more equitably. Right? Ron DeSantis doesn't want to use government power to provide more for the poor or to provide more health coverage, higher wages, or jobs. So Ron DeSantis has adopted populist talking points, but he has no more sympathy now than he did 12 years ago for populism. Right? He does not have the ethos of disdain for expertise that Donald Trump has embodied. So Ron DeSantis represents a bulwark against populism, a bulwark against Donald Trump's style discussed with expertise, right? Ron DeSantis wants to convince Republican voters that their enemies are cultural elites rather than economic ones, that their liberty is imperiled not by the existence of an oligarchy, but the oligarchy's irksome cultural woke mores. So Ron DeSantis has honed an agenda that attacks progressive orthodoxies where they are most likely to affect and to annoy conservative elites, such as gay and trans inclusion in suburban schools, diversity and equity in corporations, black studies in AP classes and universities. Now, none of these issues resonate with the working class, but the conservative elite treat these issues as an article of faith that will motivate the average Republican voter, which is doubtful. So the conservative movement and the conservative elites have staked their viability on the belief that Americans resent liberal elites because they're woke and not because they wield so much power over other people's lives. So they want to replace the progressive elite with a conservative elite with men like Ron DeSantis. And they have the attitude that Americans, by and large, are comfortable. They are free and easy with the notion that only certain men are fit to rule. Now, Donald Trump, despite what he sometimes represents, is probably no more likely than Ron DeSantis to disrupt the American oligarchy. So as president of the United States, Donald Trump let the plutocrats you know, run the country. So few politicians on either side appear eager to unleash as opposed to contain America's leveling spirit, to contain capitalism, to give every American the means and not merely the right to rule themselves. So we have a culture war, but pretty much everyone is for retaining elite rule. Okay, I'm going to give Tucker Carlson one more chance to say something profound. You're saying that, uh, that you would be uh, taking part in uh, our upcoming election in 2024. Well, I'll either, so either, either roll an egg or you know, being the, the, good, you know, the guy who's pushing them out. Come on, help a, bro- help a brother out. Make no, some news no, for no, me. No. I, well, I, I plan on running now, but we're not prepared to announce it yet. He can barely speak the words. We're not prepared to announce it yet, he says with his eyes closed. Well, why aren't they announcing it? Well, you know why. He's going to be 82 by the next inauguration, and no one really other than his wife thinks that's a good idea because it's not. So where does that leave Democrats? Well, if you're a rational person who took them at their word, you would assume the party, the Democratic Party, would replace Joe Biden with someone who embodies their highest values. You imagine a trans black woman with a background in corporate HR or a Latinx drag queen with purple hair and lots of face piercings or maybe even Kamala Harris. But no, in fact, no chance. That would be principled, and therefore, they will never do it. 
nominating someone you say you support? No. When Biden leaves, or more likely is shoved aside, they're going to nominate another straight white man who loves the big banks. Someone even oilier and faker than Joe Biden. Why would they do that? Because it worked last time. And we're guessing if we had to bet tonight, it's going to be Gavin Newsom. We can't say that for certain, but we have noticed Gavin Newsom was at the White House not long ago when Joe Biden wasn't, just kind of measuring the curtains. And then over the weekend, we saw this Gavin Newsom sitting down with the Democratic Party's former spokeswoman, now in residence at MSNBC, Jen Psaki. Psaki didn't conduct really an interview. She's not a journalist. She gave Newsom instead a chance to outline his platform for when he takes complete control. So don't dismiss him. You may be in the habit of dismissing Gavin Newsom. Pay close attention as he gives his pitch on MSNBC. You know, I just finished 18 events in five days in California. I've sacrificed my heart and soul for my state, and I take a backseat to no one on that. So I get it. But I also don't get what's going on in this country. I don't get why everybody's not doing what we're doing. All the progress the last half century is being rolled back in these states in real time. In just the last few years, I don't think people fully understand the rights regression individual liberties, on civil rights, on voting rights, on the gerrymandering that's happening out here. <laughs> well, I mean, is your brain exploding? If you're a literal person, maybe so. This is the guy who forced every one of his 40 million residents in his state to get an experimental vaccine, whether they wanted to or not lecturing you about individual rights and civil liberties. Quote, I don't get why everyone isn't doing what we're doing in California. Okay, that's absolute nonsense. He didn't force everyone in California to get the vaccine. Uh, California is only about 70% vaccinated. Now, he was the first person, first governor to shut down a state in, in reaction to COVID. And I think he was absolutely right to do that. So credit to Gavin Newsom. I think he has been at least an average, if not an above average, governor of California. California, he says. Maybe because it's not working? <laughs> because the people who live in your state who can afford to leave have? More people have left California this year than any state in the country. California, the largest net emigration in the United States. They actually ran out of U-Hauls. It was that bad. So you have a mixture of billionaires and desperately poor people who are dependent upon the state. Kind of like Latin America. That's exactly the economic structure increasingly of the state of California. It's not a place of promise. And you know that because middle-class people with families aren't moving there. That's how you know. Is your state doing the right thing? Well, people who haven't made it but would like to would be moving there, not fleeing from tyranny in other countries or desperate poverty in Central America, but from other Okay, so it is expensive to live in Florida, but it's not like middle-class people are just inherently superior to working-class people or to upper-class people. So generally speaking, over the past five, eight years, the people who move into California are more affluent, uh, better educated, and higher earners than people who move out of California. Other parts of America, are they moving there? No, they're not. Where are they going? Well, actually, they're going to Florida. That's not a political point. It's just true, and it's measurable. 
Okay, so there are a lot of housing restrictions in California. All right, there are a lot of environmental regulations. California is a fairly highly regulated state, which makes it difficult to build affordable housing. And that has led many people to leave California, particularly people on the lower half of the economic spectrum, and move to places where it's cheaper to live, such as Texas and Florida. I don't see how that's some devastating critique of California. So all the predictions were that California would have 10 million more residents now than they do have. I don't think California is disadvantaged because we are losing population. I think California is better off for having lost uh, population uh, over the past few years. I think it's a good thing. I am not eager for more affordable housing, right? I just want to leave housing up to the free market, let housing stay super expensive. I don't want California to grow. I don't want a, a boom in affordable housing. Right? I want California to, as much as possible, stay pristine. And I don't want more people moving in. So I am just fine with more people moving out of California than moving in. I think that makes California better, not worse. So you'd think if you were a normal person and you were running California, you'd think, what are they doing in Florida that we should be doing? No, not Gavin Newsom. And this is the key to his appeal to Democratic leaders. Like Joe Biden, he will literally say anything and then he'll take it to 11 and lecture the person who's doing a better job than he is on how he's a bad person. Watch Newsom tell the governor of Florida how to run a state. There was a pretty startling split screen. You had a thousand kids oh, in yeah. Nashville out there protesting the lack of action on gun uh, reform measures. Mm -hmm. Well, you had Governor DeSantis signing a yeah. bill on permitless carry Sick. behind closed doors. Yeah, what did you make of that? Death. Scared to death. Who is he scared of? Scared of the people. Scared the of the people public. in Florida? Yeah, that overwhelmingly oppose that position. <laughs> I think the majority of NRA members, you know, probably oppose that position. <laughs> This is what happens when everything about you, from your physical features to your very soul, has been altered by cosmetic surgery. Just like Joe Biden, but younger. You'll say literally anything. Words have no connection to reality. There's no expectation that you're describing something real. You're merely using words as a tool to gain power. That's terrifying. It's dishonest to its core. So you just heard Gavin Newsom say, Okay, let's have a look at uh, Tucker Carlson's posture. So it's uh, it's pretty good, all right? He's got a nice long neck. He's just leaning forward just a little bit, but uh, it's not really distorting his musculature. So let's uh, let's do an Alexander Technique analysis. That only leaders who are, quote, scared of the people let the people carry firearms. <laughs> They're so scared. Okay, it's hard to laugh without compressing yourself. Right. So compression isn't bad. It's bad if it's unthought through, if it's habitual, if you're doing it uh, as without even knowing what you're doing. But, yeah, if you're going to laugh, you're going to compress in some ways. If you're going to have an orgasm, you're going to compress. So there's a time and a place for muscular tension and compression, but you don't want excess elements of it, generally speaking, as an ongoing habit the people they let them defend themselves by contrast when you're a completely legitimate leader presiding over a system that's not rigged 
you start confiscating guns. You live in a state where only the governor's bodyguards can be armed. <laughs> it's like, what's your... Also, notice the, the beautiful symmetry in Tucker Carlson's shoulders. So most people have one shoulder that's much more compressed than the other. So I sleep on my left side, I think, about 90% of the time. So my left shoulder is a little bit more compressed than my right shoulder. But uh, Tucker's got a nice equidistance in his shoulders. Good for you, Tucker. Seeing here is not just the triumph of packaging over reality, but the triumph of dishonesty over truth. That's so dishonest that he's not even trying to convince you. He's trying to reshape reality itself. By the way, why wouldn't he? If men can become women, then why wouldn't everything Gavin Newsom says be true just because he said it? So what's the effect on the actual state, our largest state, the prettiest state, what was for decades the economic engine of the United States, California? What has been the effect of Gavin Newsom's leadership on that state? Well, this has been well chronicled. Newsom's been the governor of California, beat a recall recently since 2019 for four years. Before that, he ran San Francisco, where he's from. So how's San Francisco doing? Under good leadership, San Francisco would be thriving. But under Gavin Newsom's leadership, well, here's what's happening in San Francisco. And the question, uh, Tucker's chuckle is a bit gay. I don't think it's a gay chuckle. I think it's a very straight chuckle. Do I wear my CPAP on my side or laying flat, bro? I got bad news. My CPAP kicked the bucket six weeks ago. So instead of uh, sleeping with a CPAP, this is what I'm sleeping with these days. So I've got this nice, like, inclined pillow, which uh, I notice my, my nasal passengers tend to get blocked up at night. So I have to get a, a bit of elevation and then just one pillow on top of, top of this uh, angled pillow. And I don't think I've had quite the quality of sleep that I had with a CPAP. So I need to go out and buy a new CPAP, but I don't want to go through the doctors. Like, if I go through the doctors and follow the rules, it'll cost me... Uh, thousands of dollars. I, I just want to go buy a CPAP on the black market, save myself some money. What, what could possibly go wrong? But sometimes my nasal passages are really blocked up. They tend to block up at night. I need that, that elevation. I often wake up at night and my mouth is so dry because my mouth, I'm, my mouth's popped open while I'm sleeping. And unfortunately, I'm breathing through my mouth. So sometimes when I'm really struggling to open everything up, this is what I do. All right, this is a fair dinkum. All right, look at, look at the elevation on this baby. All right, this isn't messing around. I mean, I'm really elevated. And then the old nasal passages open up, not so comfortable for sleeping. And at times in the past, I, I'd wake up with back pain with this type of uh, elevated pillow i haven't suffered from that the last five weeks baruch hashem your breathing can be fixed by your diet really they call that a mouth breather i hear dentists don't like that well i've got a mouth guard in there this mouth guard mate it's only supposed to last like three months and then replace it but i've had it for like six years and I haven't had to replace it. Now, I got the type of mouth guard that elevates the, the lower 
the lower part of my jaw a little bit and that helps you know open up the nasal passages but there's a um there's a downside to that it, it's created it's created gaps in my my lower teeth because it's it's brought my lower jaw forward so this is how i sleep i got i listen all night and then i i sleep like this and then the air is coming in like this and uh so I'm waking up and my mouth is just dry. But this, this. If I don't have my mouth guard in, I grind my teeth. And then my teeth just become incredibly sensitive. So better a mouth guard. <sighs> better, better CPAP and a mouth guard. I finally mastered. I finally mastered a few months ago. In Australia, I finally mastered wearing a CPAP and a mouth guard at the same time. It used to be that I'd switch in and out and just do one at a time. But I finally mastered uh, being at ease with having my mouth guard in and the CPAP on. And then my bloody CPAP, after 10 years of faithful service, just goes out on me. So now I'm, I'm on the hunt for a, for a new CPAP, looking for one very reasonably priced. And you know, don't bother me with that whole prescription thing. What about freedom? Freedom! Why can't people buy their own bloody CPAPs without needing a doctor's prescription? It's a Shonda. Friends identify the victim as Don Carmignani, a former San Francisco fire commissioner. He suffered a fractured skull, broken jaw, and lots of lacerations to his face and head. Carmignani showed up to his mother's place after they refused to move. Soon they picked up and put down near the corner laundromat. Carmignani confronted them, and that, they say, is what provoked the brutal beating. The crime angering and... Yeah, don't confront criminals, thugs. Uh, people with low impulse control, right? Look for another solution. Uh, usually not a good idea to confront criminals. Traumatizing those who heard or saw it all unfold. I mean, yeah, grieve for your lost freedoms. Like, grieve for the destruction of your city. Grieve for the destruction of the favorite parts of your city. Grieve for the destruction of your community. Grieve for the destruction of your people. But, yeah, grieve at whatever... Please don't do anything that will restrict your future freedom of movement. I think that's the important thing. I moved here because I love this city, and uh, it's becoming more and more uh, disturbing to, li to live here. Yeah, they just closed today, actually, a Whole Foods in downtown San Francisco. Not a mom and pop place. A so to what extent is Gavin Newsom responsible for this? Uh, maybe 5%, 10%. I, I don't think he's a majority of the problem. I mean, this is an overall problem with the Democratic Party. This is one reason why I'd always vote Republican. Because no matter how weak and spineless the Republican, they're invariably better on crime and punishing super predators than Democrats. Whole Foods, a well-backed, in fact, owned by Amazon company, biggest company in the world, owns the grocery store, and they still had to close it, a grocery store that caters to rich people in one of the richest cities in the world, and they had to close it because why? Because the people who worked there were too afraid for their own physical safety to show up for work. So that's what's happening in San Francisco. And by the way, last week, Bob Lee, the founder of Cash App, was murdered, stabbed to death on the street, and what they tell us is one of the nicest parts of San Francisco. 
And then apparently, according to surveillance video, the guy who murdered him randomly, just murdered him on principle, I guess, walked down the street completely at ease, pulling a rolling bag behind him because he has nothing to fear because there are no cops. This is a state in which crime has been legalized and the only crimes are now thought crimes. If you disagree with the people in charge, then you're in serious trouble. But if you hurt others or steal, you're fine. You're part of a protected class. That's the definition of tyranny. And there are still some people in California who understand that. Here's one sheriff in Riverside County. In the last 10 years, criminals have become increasingly more violent and brazen. What we are seeing in, in response to these very lax laws on, on crime, the, the, the push to decriminalize everything, the push to lessen the penalty for something or even take away the penalty for crime, is basically emboldening criminals to do more. It's really horrifying for law enforcement and it's horrifying for the public that has to deal with it. So here's our guess. We don't know. Oh, sorry, bro. I had to call in because I'm the San Francisco correspondent. Thank you. Show. Thank you. San Francisco bureau you know. chief. San I've, I've promoted you to bureau chief. Yes, it's a very august title for a very august position. So I'm very, I'm going to be very sober here. I mean, you're yeah, very so, august uh, even during times of peak pleasure. Yes. But I'm crossing that Rubicon. I can't sleep at night and I need to cross that Rubicon. I'm looking the part, dude. So, yeah, this um, Bill Lee thing. Uh, Bob Lee, Robert Lee, I think. Bob, Bill Lee, I think Bob, it was. Bob Lee, the, man. What was he doing walking yeah. the streets at 2.30 a.m.? Does he play for the other team? <laughs> well, he was in a very nice part of town. Um, but the thing is, the nice part of town, the nice parts of town, but right up against the worst parts of town. So it's a very weird sort of geographical situation where you're in a nice part of town and you walk one block and suddenly you're in uh, Wakanda, as it were. And uh, he, um, it, it's, it's been like a doubly fascinating story for me because um, it's all over the local news here. Apparently he, uh, he was stabbed, but he, he, he then sort of like ran into traffic begging for help. Yeah, and showed uh, off his stab wound, and someone just drove off. Yeah, people were just like, you know, I'm not dealing with this. This is just too much because you can't drive in San, in downtown San Francisco without a thick skin. I mean, it's just you must have one. Otherwise, the scenes you will see, like people will just jump out in the middle of your in the middle of the road when you're driving, and um, so you just have to assume anybody approaching your car a moving car is insane you just might have to assume that way and so you don't stop first for strangers who are begging for help you know so no, no i understand um, i understand why i didn't he why he didn't stop yeah and like i i start to think like what well, would i have stopped truth be told 2 30 a.m downtown san francisco some guys like screaming no i'm not gonna stop i'm not gonna I, stop you know and i can hmm? Yeah, because Bob Lee wouldn't stop for death. Death kindly stopped for him. Yeah. And so so that, then that's one layer of the story. The next layer of the story is 
So, you know, the next door app, I don't know if you're part of it. I am. Yes. Uh, yes, um, yes. It's sort of like a neighborhood gossip, gossip yes. site. Yeah. And so people are reading the story and they're just sort of decrying this. Like, and like one woman was like sanctimoniously lecturing the rest of us is like, we need to be better people. We need to stop as if she would have stopped. Right. Which is highly, highly dubious. Um, but that's a weird dynamic where there's this sort of collectivist moralizing that goes on at next door, which I think is the province of women and uh, women. Um, I mean, next door is probably 80% women to, to right off the jump, you know, and there's this sort of um, virtue singling, moralizing. Uh, um, yeah, well, it's very interesting. Yeah, virtue signaling is is virtuous. It, it's good that people signal how good they are. So even though it's often fatuous and empty, you know, it's better that people signal that they are good people rather than signal that they don't give a toss about being a good person. Yeah. And so, you know, it was food for thought. Like, uh, it made me think about, you know, what a strange circumstance this was, right? So that's layer two of the, the of the Bob Lee story. So the layer three, Chuck Johnson, our friend, our mutual friend, your personal acquaintance, not mine. Yeah, sober-minded um, analyst. Yeah. He publishes a piece, and he's such a weird guy, but he's like, he says that uh, the victim here was a involved in some very financially dubious activities and b heavily into drugs you know like how he would know i don't know this is sort of my problem with chuck johnson he just makes these incredibly bold claims you know and this is just yet another one that you know and he sort of casts aspersions on uh bob lee and thinking that he was out prowling for drugs when he was killed so I haven't seen a picture of the suspect yet, and I don't know if there is a suspect um, or an identified suspect, but that was the, a third dimension to this story. And so, and then I'm hearing, like I'm talking to casual friends of mine, and they're telling me about their property values going down and that, you know, they think that this particular killing is gonna be the catalyst for some sort of right-wing reaction which I had to sort of hide my power level and say, oh, do you think? <laughs> <laughs> you know, but I'm wondering what the, I mean, when is it going to happen? So, and then in sort of in a moment of inspiration in the middle of the night, I made a post on next door, uh, which I rarely do. And I just wrote one sentence and I wrote, you voted for this mayhem period. And then posted it, you know, yeah. Just, just, just to see what the waters, you know, just to yeah, 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 fill out the waters, and so a lot of people liked it, and then I got a course, sort of, sort of the, sort of the, you know, textbook kind of leftist response, um, but things are getting worse here. There's no question about it. There is no, it's, it's palpable, it's noticeable, and people are talking about it. So, you know, we may have had this conversation a year ago, and I was a little bit more bullish, more optimistic. Um, but yeah, just the, the amount of crime and the brazenness of this crime and the sort of the they're upping the ante on the violence seems to be noticeable. 
that was a great post because it was very short and and i hope you didn't like jump in to defend it you, you just you know just made your point with with absolute brevity and then you didn't yeah. allow it to consume your life i assume i just let it go i just wanted beautiful. to see where it was going beautiful you know? yeah see sue taking on so so i thought that was interesting um but uh, it's just weird how, you know, San Francisco keeps making the news, you know, and it's just weird living here and uh, finding the city being in such a punching bag. And at the same time, like my day to day life is just completely fine. You know, it, it's yeah. sort of very discordant. The media paints just such an exaggerated portrait of yeah. the way things are. And it's just very, you know, interesting to hear public perception versus reality how often you know how yeah how how often do you have to wipe human feces off the bottom of your shoes uh never never okay but i know what to avoid i mean you know how to avoid it i know the places where to avoid right you can spot those piles and you step around them yeah yeah so luckily i'm out in the you know kind of the hinterlands of the city so um you know, I, I, I'm not in a cool. It pays not to be a hipster, right? Because all these hipster enclaves, with with the with the with the, with the astronomical rents, are usually the places that get hit, hit the hardest by the sort of fecal scourge. So, um, what's the what's the most likely how... what's the most likely explanation for Bob Lee walking the streets at 2:30 a.m.? He was trying to do something good or neutral, or he was engaged in the pursuit of bad behavior. So I would say the odds are probably five to one that he was engaged in nefarious behavior. I think he was probably leaving a party and he was probably high on coke. Yeah. If I had to guess. I mean, there's um, not, there are rarely good reasons to walk the streets at 2.30 a.m. I mean, you, just ask your grandma. Like anyone ask your grandma and they'll tell you Nothing good happens after midnight. Yeah, that's right. Reminds me of a story. Like, um, I was, when I was like 19, I was a VISTA volunteer. I don't know if you know what those are. No. But it's kind of like this. It's kind of like the Peace Corps, but it's for the domestic. It's a very lefty thing. You go into blooded neighborhoods and you're young and idealistic and you help out the Wakandans and so forth. And, you know, I did this for a year, but not because I was really that consumed with idealism, but it was actually the only job I could find. So anyway, so the guy that, so I had to work at one of these neighborhood organizations, kind of like the ones that Barack Obama ran, you know, a community organizing <laughs> organization. <Yeah. laughs> and so it was run by the state legislature, this state legislator. And he told a story, which was very amusing, about, so he was once day, you know, waxing uh, lyrical about his days as a civil rights organizer in Florida. <laughs> and he was telling the story about how this, the, there's like, we used to call them hanging judges in Florida, like these Southern yeah. judges that um, a little bit ham-fisted, shall we say. And so there's this one guy that was arrested in a sort of in a bad part of Tampa or it might have been Miami. I forgot which. Yeah. It was a bad part of town. Right. And he was I forgot what he was charged with, 
But the judge said to him, and this is this guy relating the story to him. The judge said to the defendant, you got arrested in Browntown at two in the morning. And we both know there's no, there's only two reasons a white boy is in Browntown and ain't none of them legal. Yeah. Guilty. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Which I that, thought was that, a great story. Yeah. And it's more true than not. Yeah, 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 exactly, exactly. Things are often what you think they are, right? Yeah, people like yeah. people, um, you know, they try to they try to get you off of stereotypes, right? But in yeah. fact, stereotypes are actually what's true most of the time. <laughs> yeah, there's a great line in the TV show Yellowstone: "Until they find a cure for human nature, uh, man belongs with his own kind." <laughs> Yes, yes. When you go to Anyway, Browntown, bro, I got to talk when, about when, your CPAP situation. Okay. But or when you go you to Br Browntown, when you go to Browntown, what are the reasons that you go to Browntown or have gone to Browntown? Oh, because I'm just doing the Lord's work, bro. I'm preaching. I'm, okay. pre I, you know, I, you know, I'm a, I'm a preacher and I'm sort of imbued in theology and i'm just out there saving souls bro beautiful beautiful okay let's talk about my cpap situation my cpap okay. died i want to get you, one on you the got, here's here's you don't need a cpap all you have to do is this cut out carbs and you can have a little bit of carbs but just don't have giant giant servings of carbs like i don't know what you eat but you know you gotta have a nice salad you know and you know, some good healthy food without a big amount of carbs. And that it's that carbs that create the reaction, creates the mucus, which clogs your, your asthma, your asthma, uh, what do you call it? Your bronchioles. And that's why you get stuffed up and congested. Okay. Thank so you. seriously, take a week and just do salads and tell me you don't sleep like a baby. Just one week, one week. Have you ever just eaten salads for one week? Nothing but salads? I try, Luke. It's hard. I'm making one right now, actually, but <clears throat> it can be done. Now I know, but you are a vegetarian. Um, so what's a typical uh, dinner for you? Well, it's Passover right now, so I think I'm going to eat some cheese and a chocolate bar. Cheese and chocolate, huh? Interesting. Yeah. Very that... chocolate for dinner, huh? Yeah, I mean, I had, like a dark chocolate, or for, like a had it for lunch as well. It's a kosher for Passover. So I like my chocolate like I like my women, like really, really dark. Yeah, I hear you, bro. Um, well, wait a second. You know, chocolate's got a lot of caffeine. Are you eating it late at night? Oh, yeah, I don't want caffeine. So no, maybe, chocolate maybe just for lunch, my dude. Chocolate for lunch and then ixnay on the aquache for dinner, bro. Yeah, I'll just have some cheese and some yogurt. Some Greek there you yogurt, go. so it's Bro, high in protein. Throw in a nice salad, man. It's not hard to make a salad. Get a nice some dressings that you like. And I'm telling you, the lettuce. Get some good quality lettuce or some arugula, and this will clear out your upper blanc. That's is where that, all the problems happen. Is that why you're so clear when you phone into the show? There's like no phlegm or no mucus. You never hear that in your voice because you avoid the carbs. Well, bro, bro, well, yeah. And that's what I do because of my problems. I'm acutely, if, if I'm a master of any subject, Luke, 
it's it's upper respiratory affections because any subject which i'm intimate and i know all the details of it's bronchioles okay bro okay. I'm, I'm just trying to help you i'm not trying to evangelize i'm just saying that it's you. a solution to your problem and it doesn't involve expensive equipment and uh, what are your favorite salad dressings do you make your own oh well i like a 80% of the time, I just do a very simple uh, olive oil and balsamic in roughly equal parts, and then maybe some leftover red wine, which I know you don't drink. So then maybe a garlic, couple of cloves of garlic. It's all you need for salad dressing. It's fine. But, you know, I, I do, I mean, you know, just because I love crossing that Rubicon, I do like a Caesar salad as well. Yeah, Caesar, you, you do. Caesar yeah. Yeah, you know what I'm saying. Yeah. All right. And uh, oh, bro, do... I gotta cook. I gotta cook. Huh? Okay, bro. I was just wondering, what do you do yeah. with your need for love and to give love? I call into the Luke Forge, huh, Luke. Beautiful. This is the place to love and to be loved, bro. Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. Well said, Elliot Blatt. Okay. Another guy. But we would bet money that the second that man is vested in his pension, in other words, the second he can leave, he'll be in Idaho or Arizona or anywhere other than that state. Because you can't live in a state like that unless you're rich, of course. So if you cared about the state of California, you would do something about this. But Gavin Newsom has completely ignored the condition of his state physically. It's now filthy or the lives of the people who live there. Instead, he's doing what they all do, which is doubling down on identity politics, pandering to people on the basis of their skin color or their sexual orientation or whatever. And because ultimately he is a stiff, robotic lizard man, he's doing it in the most awkward possible way. Here he is, April 5th, at the New College of Florida, because he is running for president, trying his best to seem interested as he claps along to an ethnic song and dance. He's got me into the Okay, so Gavin Newsom's got pretty good use of himself, all right? His head's not tilting too much back on, on his... Uh, on his, his back, so he's not compressing his spine too much. He's got nice width across his shoulders and across his chest. So, yeah, um, pretty good use of himself, Gavin Newsom. <laughs> so, you want to know if he's running for president? Well, he flew to Florida to degrade himself on camera. And self-abasement is the number one requirement of politics. You have to be willing to leave your dignity at the door. And for Gavin Newsom, that's easy. So if your first reaction to that... And if you want to succeed in live streaming, it really helps if you're willing to abase yourself. <laughs> like, it really helps if you're willing to be vulnerable, to reveal you know, very painful, uh, shameful things about yourself. So there are a lot of professions acting, right? Uh, helps to be willing to abase yourself. That is to recoil in revulsion and turn off your television set, then you're the threat to democracy. Normal people are the threat to democracy. Newsom's 
campaign ad, and this is the first of his presidential campaign ads, we predict, makes that perfectly clear. Watch. We can't solve a problem without first... Look at that. Nice, tall neck. A little bit of unnecessary tension in his jaw, but his shoulders are relaxed. Notice how symmetrically they, they fall off to the side. Uh, so some unnecessary tension around his, his lips, but his forehead is largely free of unnecessary tension. Identifying it. And the problem in our country right now, authoritarian leaders who are so hell-bent on gaining power and... So notice how much taller Gavin Newsom's neck is, how much longer and freer it is than Ron DeSantis and the, the governor of Texas, right? They've got no neck, right? Texas governor, Florida governor have no neck, but Gavin Newsom is leading the way with a nice, long, free neck. Keeping it by whatever means necessary. Donald Trump, all right, doesn't have much of a neck. So Trump, DeSantis, that Texas governor are very much stuck in fight or flight. Well, Gavin Newsom is embodying, you know, f the free use of the self. I, I feel like Gavin Newsom has crossed the bridge to total freedom. Sorry, that they're directly attacking our freedoms in state after state. Notice how much longer and freer his neck is than all those Republicans that he showed. That's why I'm launching the campaign for democracy. We're going on the road to take the fight to states where freedom is most under. So I'm going to wager that Gavin Newsom has had Alexander Technique lessons. Attack where Republican leaders ban books, criminalize doctors, fire teachers, intimidate librarians, kidnap migrants, target trans kids, stoke racism, condone anti-Semitism, force the victims of rape and incest to carry their attacker's baby, where they ignore the will of the people and make it harder to... Right, so when he's saying these church things, it'd be very easy for him to pull down, constrict his neck, uh, constrict his spine, you know, tighten up, constrict his shoulders and his chest, but he's not doing that. He's got really good use. The vote and easier to buy assault weapons will help lead the fight to make sure we elect leaders in 2024 who believe in democracy. Oh, the huevos on that man. You got to give him credit. Everything in that ad is not only untrue, it is the mirror image of the truth. It is the exact opposite of the truth. And it's therefore not just misleading, it is evil. This is not a question of, we disagree on something. This is a fact of someone flipping around the truth and inverting it. If you're opposed to men in dresses twerking in front of kids, you're intimidating librarians. If you pause before you say castrate children, you're targeting trans kids. And of course, if you're not with his program, you don't believe in democracy. You're promoting authoritarianism. This is the man who's governor of a state in which there really is no democracy, in which all the candidates and the election outcomes are chosen by the unions, which are in bed with the Democratic Party. It's a one-party state. And the man who presides over a one-party state is lecturing you about democracy? Right. This is the guy who shut down the state of California and all of its schools for all the poor people while he sent his children to in-person private schools and went to dinner at the most expensive restaurant in the United States. Meanwhile, anyone who didn't get his creepy shot, he compared to a criminal, to a criminal. To a... Okay, I don't have a problem with him sending his kids to private school. I don't have a problem with anyone who can afford it sending their kids to private school. I don't have a problem with anyone who can afford an expensive dinner to go have an expensive dinner. 
Right? These things don't bother me. I don't care. Drunk driver. Watch. And with all due respect, you don't have a choice to go out and drink and drive and put everybody else's lives at risk. That's the equivalent of this moment with the deadliness and efficiency of the Delta virus. Okay, that's dramatic overstatement. Very common dramatic overstatement in favor of COVID vaccines. It is a dramatic overstatement, which is far removed from reality, but uh, very common, right? Very common for politicians, public figures to employ dramatic overstatement in the service of what they see as a good cause. So people who said things like what Gavin Newsom just said, now they end up with a lot of egg on their face. So that turned out to be completely untrue, completely provably untrue as a matter of science. And again, the literal among us are driven crazy by watching a videotape like that. But Gavin Newsom is not driven crazy. And Laponia says, what if you can afford an expensive dinner, but you prevent others from going out to dinner? Well, by and large, America didn't have lockdowns compared to what Europe and Australia had. Like you went out, you violated lockdown rules in Australia. You got like a $5,000 fine. America didn't have anything akin to that. Right? California didn't have lockdowns, anything equivalent to what Australia had in large parts of Europe. But to, let's just say that America did. I don't really care if a politician who can afford an expensive dinner goes out and enjoys an expensive dinner, but prevents others from going out to dinner. Right? It's not really a big deal to me. Just like I would prefer a politician who says it's a bad thing to commit adultery, but then goes out and commits adultery, right? You, you should, uh, you know, set the moral example or you should, you know, say the right things. And if you're weak in your private life, not a big deal. What if your kids go to private school while you're destroying public education? You know, not a great thing, but I don't really care if politicians send their kids to private school. And I think Gavin Newsom has destroyed public education. Now, in large parts of California and probably other parts in the United States, public schools, I believe, were effectively closed for two years. I think that was a mistake. That was wrong. They deserve to be criticized for it. Uh, maybe up to three months, possibly. Uh, yeah, three months, I think you could make a good case for closing public schools from March to June of 2020. Uh, closing them after that, I think... In retrospect, was a mistake, but I can't say that I was out, you know, campaigning at the time that this is outrageous. California had lockdowns, but they weren't lockdowns like uh, Europe and Australia had, where there are massive fines for violating lockdowns. They were more like lockdowns as suggestions. Not the same, bro. Adultery is his business. Being prevented from going out is my business. But they weren't police preventing you from going out, right? America did not have lockdowns that were legally enforced so that you got fined if you left your home right in australia you got fined if you went too far from home like more than five kilometers or from your your workplace doesn't bother him at all he's never apologized he's never revised what he said before he just kept going this is a man so yeah gavin newsom cucked his campaign manager I mean, the heart has reasons of its own, guys, that the, the head will never understand. I mean, I don't endorse cucking your campaign manager, but I mean, that's what the campaign manager signed up for. And who will say anything, and people who will say anything tend to be willing to 
do anything. And like Joe Biden, he has consistently run as a moderate and falsely. Laponius says there are serious lockdowns in Canada, bro. Curfews at 8 p.m. Yeah, well, Canadians are sheep, man. They like, they're just very obedient of government directives. They're not uh, unruly like Americans. Back in 2008, mayor of San Francisco, he promised to eliminate homelessness within the city within 10 years. That, of course, didn't work out. He's never apologized for that. In fact, homelessness has grown by double digits under his stewardship of the state. But if you want to understand who Gavin Newsom really is, if you want to appreciate not just the dishonesty, but the deep malice at the core of him, the desire to hurt other people and the indifference to human suffering that has been the hallmark of his governorship, watch this clip from 2020 on sobriety. Clean and sober is one of the biggest damn mistakes this country's ever made. Look, he's got a nice free neck, a nice long free neck. I know it's a hold-your-hand idealistic point of view that somehow magically, I mean, God bless some of you. I, if you're like me, I've been known to have a glass of wine at night watching some of the nightly news. Uh, we all need to self-medicate periodically. We all need to self-medicate periodically. Well, now we have a country in which virtually everyone is self-medicating all the time, very often with the help of doctors. And nowhere is it worse than the state of California. If you cared about the people who lived in the state of California, you would notice this. Nearly 30,000 Californians die every single year. Well, some people are better off self-medicating with a glass of wine or playing video games or you know, other forms of you know, taking a Xanax. Uh, other people are better off being clean and sober. It's not like there's just one definitive rule for everyone. From drugs and alcohol, that's the most of any state. To put it in perspective, that is close to 10 times as many people who die every year from gunfire. And of course, addiction is the central driver of homelessness, which has not only made the state ugly and dangerous and unlivable, but has also destroyed the lives of the people who are living on the streets. What about them? Gavin Newsom doesn't care. Quote, clean and sober is one of the biggest damn mistakes this country ever made. Really? If you're willing to say that, if you care so little about the people who live in your state that you will mock their sobriety, then you're definitely running for president. But before that happens, we thought we would check in on someone who has spent his life in the state and has seen it change longitudinally over more than 50 years. Adam Curl is our friend. He joins us tonight to respond to a potential Gavin Newsom presidential run. Adam, what, he's your governor. What do you think of this? All right. I, I could barely watch that without crawling out of my skin or not being clean and sober. It, yeah. Okay, couple things. He came on my podcast nine years ago and he told me his number one issue was homeless and homelessness. He was, that was his number one issue. I said to him, the homeless population, this is 10 years ago, is comprised of drug addicts and people with mental disabilities and or both. He then said to me, sitting three feet across from me, but what about the true face of homelessness, which is a mother of three who has a full-time minimum wage job whose husband left her? So that was his idea of solving a problem, and he declared himself the number one issue is homelessness, and that's what he thought homeless was in California. Of course, it's grown exponentially, and no one has ever seen a mother of three with a full-time job out on the street. He's a sociopathic buffoon, 
But the scary part is people vote for him. It's really you and I, we don't need to unsolve the riddle of Gavin Newsom. He's a carpetbagger. He's an idiot. He's bought and sold. He's a sociopath. He puts Brill cream on his teeth. Fine. Why do people vote for him? That's the real question that we need to solve. Well, that's the threat to democracy right there. If you have a population, it's a brand new population, a huge percentage of Californians just got there from other countries. If you have a population that votes for a leader that makes things worse, that is the challenge to democracy and make things worse measurably, like measurably, economically, in, in crime. I mean, like, that's a huge problem, a scary problem. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. The great Carol Shelby, the man who made the Shelby Cobra, left Texas in the 60s to come to California to yeah. build cars. Could you imagine leaving Texas and coming to California to manufacture something in 2023? Also, here's a thought experiment that I think would work. Do you think if a number of Joe Biden's aides said to him, you can't run for president, we're already in our second term. Do you think he would believe that? <laughs> okay, that's good. <laughs> well, I don't run into Biden too often, but if I ever see him, I'm going to say that. You know, the Constitution just won't allow it, sir. I'm sorry. Um, Adam, Adam Carolla. That is hilarious. Performing in New York. Okay, so let's, uh, let's switch topics. So which people are not long for this earth? It is those people who are unwilling to declare that there is an enemy, right, in real life, a realistic enemy who desires to subjugate and destroy their people. And so one thing that I find discouraging about the Japanese is how many are you know, largely unwilling to defend their people because, hey, we have a constitution that was dictated to us by the United States circa 1945, therefore we have no choice but to follow the Constitution. So for many Japanese that I encounter, they have the attitude that the Constitution is a death warrant, right? The Taiwanese and the Japanese, right, large portions of their population doesn't seem terribly interested in surviving. They don't seem terribly interested in developing the tools, the techniques, the wherewithal to defend themselves against a rising China. It's kind of pathetic, right? The lack of desire to defend their people that many Taiwanese and the Japanese have. And so I'm listening to this excellent Great Courses series, The Rise of Modern Japan. And this is from Lecture 4, Japan's Civil Society Protests of 1960. But there are so many lessons here for today. The original security treaty of 1951 was completely unequal. It was imposed on Japan as a condition for ending the U.S. occupation after World War II. It had no expiration date, and it gave Japan almost no say in how or where U.S. troops would be used. U.S. troops could even be used, and I quote, at the express request of the Japanese government to put down large-scale internal riots and disturbances caused through the instigation or intervention by an outside power or powers. For both the Japanese right and the Japanese left, the idea that their own government could request the use of foreign troops against Japanese civilians smelled like a continuation of the occupation. And furthermore, by 1960, that unequal relationship seemed out of step 
with Japan's post-war economic recovery and broader political rehabilitation. Here are some benchmarks of that recovery. In 1955, Japan joined the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade. That's now the World Trade Organization. And that same year, Japan's gross national product surpassed its pre-war peak. In 1956, Japan joined the United Nations. And that same year, Japan surpassed the United Kingdom as the world's leading shipbuilder. So the U.S.-Japan alliance needed a new treaty that would reaffirm U.S. military bases in Japan, but it would also be more respectful of Japan's sovereignty and autonomy. And the United States was willing to renegotiate the treaty because it wanted to showcase Japan as a model ally. Just imagine the contrast. The U.S. and Japan would be joined by a treaty approved by two elected assemblies and negotiated by two heads of state. Meanwhile, Russia had to send troops into Hungary, its ally, in 1956, demonstrating that it could only keep its allies in line by force. So given that both governments, Japan and the U.S., wanted a new treaty, why did things get so messy? Here are four key reasons. First, the changing battle lines of the Cold War. Now, to be sure, few Japanese wanted to join the communist side of the Cold War. But the idea of navigating a middle course, allowing Japan to remain close to the U.S., but not in opposition to the Soviet Union and China, that had much wider appeal. The option to remain neutral was especially intriguing because of the rise of the non-aligned movement, a movement of several major Asian nations, including India and Indonesia, who sought to create a group of countries that refused to choose sides in the Cold War. Today, it's hard to recall the optimism surrounding the non-aligned movement, or to recall how thoroughly it alarmed the United States. But at the time, the movement was electrifying. Countries were demanding help from both superpowers, but refusing to ally with either one. In Japan, the non-aligned movement became a way to criticize Japan's alliance with the U.S. Weren't U.S. bases in Japan a legacy of colonialism? Why was Japan tolerating its subordinate status to the U.S.? Why were India and Egypt free of foreign military bases, but Japan wasn't? And given its incredible post-war recovery, why wasn't Japan leading the non-aligned movement? Right, so even though it may sound good rhetorically, in the end, it's sanest for a nation-state that wants to survive to keep itself under the American nuclear umbrella. Right? Australia was rescued during World War II by the United States. As a result, since World War II, whenever America's gone to war, Australian soldiers have gone to war with America. It's part of the price that you pay for being under the protection of the U.S. nuclear umbrella. So this significant portion of the Japanese population that would like to remove itself from the protection of the American nuclear umbrella and at the same time not defend itself, right, just pathological, right? A significant proportion of Japan does not want to survive, does not care about their people, the survival of their people, their culture, their civilization. A second reason why things got so messy for Kishi was the relatively strong showing by the USSR in the late 1950s. Today in a post-Soviet world, it's hard to imagine that the Soviet Union once offered a compelling political or economic alternative to the US. But think back to the late 1950s. Which country first put a satellite in space? Well, that would be the USSR in 1957. Which was the first country to send animals into orbit and bring them back safely? That would again be the Soviet Union in 1960. And the Soviet technological challenge had military implications as well. The CIA was flying high-altitude spy missions over the USSR, 
convinced that Russian anti-aircraft missiles could not reach 70,000 feet. But the CIA was wrong. On May 1st, 1960, the Russians shot down a U-2 spy plane and captured the pilot, Francis Gary Powers. That was a huge embarrassment to the U.S. and a propaganda coup for the Soviet Union. It also happened just as Kishi was trying to get the new security treaty with the U.S. approved by the... Okay, so that's a lot like uh, China, right? There are some ways that uh, China is probably ahead of the United States, and uh, many people who want to despair about the United States can point, oh, here, 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 China is superior to the United States. China is the future. America is the past. America is falling apart. China is rising to the top. And so people were saying the same thing in the 1950s when the Soviet Union had some successes, achieved some first ahead of the United States. But overall, the trajectory of the United States is far stronger in the 1950s, even through to today, while China is falling apart. The Japanese diet. So for an ordinary Japanese observer, there were real reasons to be leery of renewing a close relationship with the United States against the USSR. A third factor was a rise in tensions around U.S. military bases. Many of those resemble problems with U.S. bases elsewhere in Asia, such as in South Korea and the Philippines. Right, so there was some individual horrible behavior by Americans, you know, members of uh, the U.S. military that uh, turned uh, Japanese and South Koreans and Germans against having bases. But this is getting distracted by compelling stories of horrible behavior by U.S. Um, service personnel. Unfortunately, most of this horrible behavior, or a disproportionate amount of this, this horrible behavior, was by oppressed peoples of color in the U.S. military. But there's a lack of perspective, right? You really want to live without the American nuclear umbrella. The base. They were arrested, and the case reached Tokyo District Court. In March of 1959, the presiding judge, Date Akio, ruled that the protesters could not be found guilty of trespassing because the U.S. bases themselves were unconstitutional. Right. So here's a judge saying that uh, protesters in Japan circa 1960 who invaded U.S. bases, they can't be convicted because U.S. bases are not constitutional. So this type of mentality, once a Japan, like the, the leaders of New Zealand, once a New Zealand without the American protective nuclear umbrella. This is, this is a, a people that is not long for this earth if this ever becomes the dominant orientation. Judge Date insisted that, according to the Japanese constitution, Japan could rely only on the United Nations, not the United States, for its defense. Imagine how pusillanimous that is. Imagine how misguided that is to rely on the United Nations for your defense. How many divisions does the United Nations have, right? On its own, it has none. Right? The United Nations is only effective when it is led by nation states who put their, their militaries to work in, in agreed furtherance of this or that United Nations aim. But in and of itself, the United Nations has almost no power, yet a significant portion of the Japanese population, the New Zealand population, and many other populations around the globe want to put their security... Right, in the hands of an entity that has almost no power. This is just suicidal. That ruling was based on strained legal reasoning, and the Japanese Supreme Court overturned it in December 1959. But for almost a year, the constitutionality of U.S. bases in Japan was questioned every day in the news. Date's ruling focused on one... 
Okay, so if you're Japan, so in 1960 or even today, if you're a nation state and you want to question the existence of American nuclear protection that comes with the price, right, of, of having bases on your soil, and this is a focus of your news media, you know, the people long for this world, right? You're not willing to do what it takes to survive, right? You have no awareness of what a dangerous world we live in. One part of one sentence in Article 9 of the Japanese Constitution. I quote, land, sea, and air forces, as well as other war potential, will never be maintained. So many people think that Japan is this shining example of a, of a strong nation state and a people with an indomitable will to survive. Well, the people contains a great deal of weakness. From there, Date jumped to the preamble, especially the passage the Japanese people have determined to preserve our security and existence, trusting in the justice and faith of the peace-loving peoples of the world. Now, Dante argued that the words, faith of the peace-loving peoples of the world... How insane is that? They wanted to trust their survival to the peace-loving orientation of the peoples of the world. There's absolutely no basis to believe that, that you can trust your people's survival to the peace-loving orientation of the peoples of the world just insane self-destructiveness and suicidal tendencies on the part of a significant portion of the Japanese population, the South Korean population, the New Zealand population, the European population. Right? Many of these populations simply lack the will to survive. Right? If this becomes dominant in a people, this is not a people that is long for this earth. The world meant that Japan's self-defense could only be entrusted to an international police force or some other organ of the United Nations, not the United States. When the Japanese Supreme Court overruled Date, it argued that he had scrambled the context. The prohibition on war material was part of Japan's renunciation of war as a sovereign right of the nation and the threat. Yeah, if you seriously renounce war as a sovereign right of your nation, rather than just as a rhetorical strategy or a tactical strategy, you know, appropriated in certain situations where you can live freely under the American nuclear umbrella. But if you seriously renounce war as a possibility for your nation, you are not long for this world because other nations will simply walk all over you, treat you like a bitch. Threat or use of force as a means of settling international disputes. So Japan had renounced a right to war, but not a right to self-defense. Yeah, any people who renounces a, a right to war is not long for this world. Now. I believe that uh, the primary thing that's going on here in Japan is a Kenny tactical strategic calculation that they are protected by the American nuclear umbrella. And so they can appear peace loving, which enables them to grow their economy without spending a lot on their military. Further, it renounced force as a means of, and I quote, settling international disputes, but not of preventing international disputes. Now, since a completely unarmed Japan would actually invite attack, a self-defense force would prevent disputes. And as a result, a small defense force would be constitutional, but an army would not be. The Supreme Court's ruling established the constitutionality of Japan's self-defense forces and of Japan's reliance on U.S. bases. But despite that legal victory, the protracted litigation created a terrible environment in which to rally support for a new security treaty. The fourth reason things got so messy was Prime Minister Kishi himself. He was a machine politician, 
rising to power by controlling his party's finances, not by being persuasive or charismatic or loved or respected. He had a terrible relationship with the press, and he had a dreadful political past. Kishi had served in Prime Minister Tojo Hideki's wartime cabinet. He had been in charge of the industrial development of Manchuria, then known as Manchukuo, a Japanese puppet state. And in Manchukuo, he had used forced labor to promote rapid industrialization. Under the U.S. occupation, Kishi was briefly arrested as a war criminal. But the U.S. decided... You know what type of people use forced labor? Those who have the strength, right, the force to compel labor, right? Those who can compel, right? The strong take what they want, the weak endure what they must. That's the way the world works. That's the way the world has always worked, right? I'm coming back here a thousand times if I have to, to drill that point home. That's the way the world works. I win. They lose. That he could be a valuable ally, largely because he was a fiercely anti-communist bureaucrat and he had experience promoting economic growth. Kishi's wartime record made him a juicy target for the Japanese left. He also rekindled public fears of war because he was an advocate of revising the Japanese constitution to eliminate Article 9, the renunciation of war. So the opposition could ask, do you really trust Kishi with national security? Remember Kishi's last great alliance, that alliance with Nazi Germany against the United States? How did that work out? So now we're going to try an alliance with the U.S. against the USSR. The oh, so an alliance with Nazi Germany didn't work out. Therefore, we're not going to try future alliances. That's just silly thinking. All right. If an alliance with Nazi Germany doesn't work out, you don't take the lesson from it. I'm not going to rely on alliances anymore. You want to choose appropriate alliances that will further your national interests not alliances that would detract from your national interests. The very fact that the treaty was Kishi's treaty gave the opposition a huge cudgel. And Kishi obliged the opposition by acting like an autocrat. In 1958, he tried to pass a new law to give police wide powers to carry out preventative detention. Police would be able to take suspicious individuals into custody before they committed a crime and to conduct searches if they suspected a crime was going to happen. Wouldn't it be amazing if nature just color-coded people in addition to animals so you could just tell at a glance you know, how likely someone was to be dangerous? Now, I'm sure there are some societies where this kind of police power would result in a better society. Right? El Salvador has smashed its gang problem and smashed its, its crime problem. Now, the Japanese, by and large, don't tend to be a terribly criminally violent people, so this might have been a tad excessive back in 1958. Police could also prevent demonstrations and parades. That bill reeked of wartime political oppression. Kishi later admitted that he wanted to use the bill to have the power to break the Japanese labor union movement. Elliot Blatt says the CPAP is low IQ. Bro, the CPAP is the gold standard for treating moderate to severe sleep apnea. Right? For, for many people with moderate to severe sleep apnea, CPAP will be far more effective than eating salads. Now, yeah. People will be better off if they can lose weight, but many people are overweight, right? They don't have the wherewithal to lose the weight, so they're better off using a CPAP. So how, how's your weight these days, Elliot Blatt? Particularly the teachers' union. The bill was so odious that Kishi's own party abandoned him and killed the legislation. Well, I don't think that, that uh, legislation was odious, right? It... Uh, 
How many hundreds, how many thousands of lives would have been saved with this kind of legislation? So there, there are advantages to this kind of legislation. There are disadvantages to this kind of legislation. As with almost all legislation, there are advantages and disadvantages. I don't really see the great uh, intelligence benefit of uh, describing legislation as odious or unesthetic. Now, the irony is that Kishi controlled large majorities in both the upper and lower houses. So all Kishi needed to do was to use slow and deliberate parliamentary procedures to get the treaty approved. But that wasn't his style. Instead, the harder Kishi pushed, the more he ignored dissent, the more he further enhanced the opposition's argument that he was... Right, you want to be effective. So sometimes pushing hard and fast is effective. Other times, going slow, being gentle, you know, responding to your partner, right? Putting putting your focus on your partner's pleasure. That's much more effective, right? You don't want to just go stampeding after the clitters. What's wrong with a good kiss on the lips? He was a man of Japan's ugly fascist past and not a man of its democratic future. Uh, Japan's ugly fascist past, I mean, that's what we say about people who lose. Right? If Japan had won, we wouldn't be talking about Japan's ugly fascist past. Kishi's contempt for parliamentary democracy became apparent when he presented the new security treaty to the Diet in February 1960. So is there ever a reason to have contempt for parliamentary democracy? Yeah, right. there are flaws in parliamentary democracy. By then, he had successfully renegotiated several key points. Most importantly, he got an explicit commitment that the U.S. would consult Japan on the deployment of U.S. forces. So Kishi and his cabinet went into the Diet confident that they had a great treaty. Too confident. When legislators... So, yeah, this is another evergreen lesson. It's not enough to be right. It's not enough to be confident in your own morality and righteousness. You have to be cognizant of how what you're proposing or what you're saying or what you're doing comes across to other people. And so even if you're right, you could be absolutely dead right. Don't be dead right. right. Take into account how what you're standing for, what you're doing, what you're saying affects other people. Because if the dominant reaction to what you're doing is blistering levels of opposition, that's likely to render you ineffective. And in a battle with reality, reality is always going to win even if you're dead right. Asked him whether U.S. bombers could leave their bases in Japan and drop nuclear weapons on, let's say, North Korea, Kishi said no. Such an act would be subject to consultation. But that was a very optimistic interpretation of the actual treaty, which reads, and I quote, the parties will consult together from time to time regarding the implement. Yeah, if you want the safety of living under the American nuclear umbrella, you'll have to give up some freedom, right? You want safety, you want security, you're usually going to have to give up freedom. True for the individual, true for nation states. ...of this treaty and, at the request of either party, whenever the security of Japan or international peace and security in the Far East is threatened. So the opposition pressed Kishi. What if Japan and the U.S. consult on bombing Pyongyang? And Japan says, please don't do that. But the U.S. says, thank you for your opinion. Consultation is complete. We're nuking Pyongyang. To this, Kishi responded, no, no, no. Japan has a veto power. To which the opposition said, really, where is that veto power in the treaty? And Kishi and his cabinet had to scramble to explain that somehow implicit in the phrase consultation was an actual veto power for Japan. Right. So it's not enough to be right. You also have to be able to articulate why you're right. 
and you have to be able to win rhetorical arguments and the public relations battle if you're going to be effective in politics. To which the opposition replied, well, if it's implicit, go back and get a treaty with an explicit veto. So all of those factors, the appeal of neutrality and the non-aligned movement, Soviet supremacy in the space race, problems with the bases and Kishi's own past, all of those factors began to move Japanese opinion away from the treaty. And the opposition prolonged the debate into May 1960 when the U-2 incident occurred. And that allowed the opposition to press Kishi on whether there were any U-2 spy missions based in Japan. So across the country, rallies and petitions against the... So sometimes when you're consistently on the losing end, when you don't have the power, when the opposition controls all the major institutions, if you can just delay and deny right, opposing legislation, that's a victory in and of itself. The treaty were growing larger and larger with millions of signatures on petitions arriving at the Diet. And ultimately, Kishi boxed himself in. With Eisenhower scheduled to visit Japan, the U.S. State Department kept asking if things were okay, and Kishi responded that everything was fine. But on May 19th, he called for a vote to extend the Diet's time in session. That extra time would be used to vote on the treaty itself. The opposition didn't have the votes to block the extension, but they thought public opinion was shifting their way. So opponents of the treaty sat down in front of the Diet Speaker's office so that he couldn't leave and reach the rostrum. So often your opponents, particularly in politics, but in life, will engage in illegal and unethical behavior. So does that mean you are then justified in you know, reacting in illegal or you know, unnecessarily forceful ways? Uh, just because someone does something ill to you, just because someone engages in illegal behavior, doesn't mean that you're going to be more effective if you escalate your response. And this Japanese prime minister escalated his response, but it wasn't effective. So the most important thing is is asking in things like this, is, it, is my response going to be effective? How is it going to come across to people who aren't aligned one way or another? So I have full sympathy for what this prime minister does in reaction to the illegal behavior of the opposition. Right? I think he was right, but it didn't work out. Right? His, his policy turned out to be dead right, and it turned out to be the end of his political career. Through nonviolent but non-parliamentary tactics, they blocked the vote until 11 p.m., at which point the speaker, Akishi Ally, called in the police and had the entire opposition carried out. Right, so this reminds me of what the Republican legislature is doing in Tennessee. Right, they responded to two Democratic legislators who interrupted the smooth functioning of the Tennessee legislature by ejecting them from the chamber. That seems to me morally right, uh, legally right, but the repercussions, the implications, the way that the public interprets this may, may very well turn out to be a negative result for Republicans. So I think Republicans and, and their reaction in Tennessee are absolutely right, but it, it could very well be that it's not going to play out in their favor. So it's not enough to be right. You have to be effective. With the opposition gone, the Speaker called the Diet to order and held a vote to extend the Diet session. With the session extended, a vote was called on the treaty itself. It was approved. Kishi had won. And now, unless the upper house voted against the treaty, it would be automatically ratified. It was a classic Pyrrhic victory. Kishi had won the battle, but he had lost the war. Why? The optics of what happened in the Diet were horrific. 
The opposition had been trying to paint Kishi as an unrepentant warmonger, and he gave them the perfect images. Police physically dragging the... Right, so even if the opposition is wrong, even if their accusations are unfair, if they're going to be able to effectively mobilize against you, you don't want to give them a sword. Right? Don't give people a sword. I'm embarrassed, but there are times where people have confided in me, and then when I got annoyed with those people, I used what they said against them. I, I threw it back in their faces. I, I'm embarrassed that I did this, but it, it's a very common you know, human tendency. So don't give people a sword. Be strategic. Don't just ask, is this right? No, ask what will be the implications? How will this come across to people who don't uh, have a partisan view? Opposition out of the diet. Every major newspaper condemned Kishi for acting like an autocrat. Even the Nikkei, the Japanese equivalent of the Wall Street Journal. Japan's leading intellectual, Maruyama Masao, gave a hugely influential speech declaring that the question was no longer the treaty itself, but the survival of Japan as a democracy. He argued, and I quote, if you have a fragment of reason and conscience, you now have no choice but to join with us and rise up to erase this stain from Japan's political history. So it's very hard to get anything done politically if all the media are opposed to you or if all the Jews are opposed to you, or if all the elites, or if all the leading institutions are opposed to you. It, it verges on the impossible to get anything done, even if you are 100% correct. By this point, Kishi was politically dead. He didn't know it yet, but he was finished. Right, so you may not even know it, but you can be finished. So Paul Nealon takes credit for the end of the Trans-Pacific Partnership. That's the trade partnership between the United States and various Pacific nations aligned against China. This is Mickey Cowles talking with Robert Wright a couple of weeks well, ago. They have adult kind of sentience. I mean, they process information. They, they you know, uh, organic information. So, um, so who knew? Um, did you know that uh, uh, the um, TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, has signed up a huge number of people, including now Great Britain? Uh, I think they're 12% of global trade. They will soon be at 20%. They're going to be huge, bigger than the EU. Well, you think so, the Cold War would would uh, would renew America's interest in that? Well, it might. Yeah. I'm sure it's already renewed the Biden administration. They weren't opposed to it to begin with, I believe. Now, for political uh, reasons, it, it became a hot potato. Uh, thanks partly to Bernie Sanders, I guess. Well, I know that the anti-trade people on my side of the fence, you know, one of the when we ran somebody, a guy who sort of went a little crazy against Paul Ryan in the primary, Ryan was panicked enough about his anti-trade message that he sort of withdrew support from TPP anyway. So the this guy Paul Nealon, who was running against him. His big boast was I killed TPP, um, which he in fact did. But uh, you know, you talk to other people who say, "Oh, if you're, if you're against China, TPP was the way to go because it was designed to exclude China." I don't know who's right in that, but uh, you know, China hawks are, re are are ready to endorse TPP, aren't they? It's designed as an anti-China mechanism. Right. So never go Paul Nealon, never go full Paul Little, never go full Kishi Mishi, and take care. Bye bye.